Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, this is Phil Ford. Welcome to this week's episode of Weird Studies, where J.F. and I discuss William Gibson's novel Pattern Recognition. At first blush, this seems like a novel that isn't weird or outlandish at all. Its world is a recognizable version of our own, with the same logo-saturated public spaces and the same distracting play of glittering, empty surfaces. But Pattern Recognition pushes liquid metal modernity to a far point, where its surfaces reverse into depths, and its hero, Case Pollard, finds herself tumbling into them, like Alice in Wonderland, pursuing the secret of an enigmatic work of art. It's a novel about the attention economy, about a postmodern culture rewilded, about the vast subtle movements of power at the dizzy reaches above our heads, about loss and grief, about souls, and about art. Pattern recognition has a happy ending, but it's not a cop-out or a sop to easy sentiment. J.F. suggests that it's a novel that asks how art can survive in an era of total commodification, and by the end of this episode we are thinking out loud once again about the figure of the magician, who doesn't begrudge whatever system constrains him or her, but remains ever awake within it, and can always find a line of flight within the system, or through it, or around it, or maybe even out of it altogether. Before we begin, I'd like to make a pitch for our Patreon. You know what I'm going to say. Patreon helps independent creators stay independent, and every little bit helps. JF and I are creating a lot of subscriber-only content for our listeners. Just in the last month, I've written posts about emotional states and musical performance, weird and unuseless versions of the I Ching, and the scientific aesthetic of parsimony. While J.F. has written about Madonna's Like a Prayer and Panpsychism's place alongside a range of philosophical isms. And we've recorded bonus shows on UFOs and the question of what our ethical obligations are when we're enjoying the art of total assholes. Long story short, if you like the kinds of things we do in the free show, you'll like what we're making for our patrons. So please consider subscribing. As I say, every little bit helps. Okay, now on to our show. Okay, so we are talking today about... William Gibson's novel Pattern Recognition. Published in 2003, written in Three, I think. Yeah. yeah. Which is a miniature eternity in kind of internet years. And in as much as much of the story revolves around the internet and around emerging technologies and around new forms of advertisement and a kind of mutant capitalism that you could feel at the time just beginning to be born – 
uh, this presentiment of a new world, like you'd think that a novel like that would age rather badly. You would. But, but rereading it for the first time in many years, I was amazed at how fresh it was. I was amazed by how he captured the the mood of our times. You know, and, and back then it would have been easy to remain unaware of that mood. But now it's really hard. In a way, he was kind of writing it for us now. Yeah, it feels like that. Yeah, despite the anachronisms or the, you know, the... Uh, the stuff he misses that he, he couldn't have done otherwise. For example, there's no mention of social media in this book, right. um, which I found conspicuous. I, I noticed that because that changed everything with regards to the internet. But he's capturing something much more profound than any given manifestation of of the internet. He's capturing kind of like what the internet as such has done to history and to us in an interesting mm-hmm. way. It's yeah. a conceptually rich, rich novel. I mean, Gibson is, he's as much a philosopher as he is a novelist, I find. Mm. And um, and this book is just packed with poetic, you know, articulations of really profound changes that have happened over the last, you know, since 1995, since, uh, was it Netscape, the first, I don't know. Since yeah, the, I think so. Since the internet Commer- came out. Yeah, the commercially available version of the internet. Yeah, I will say at the front end that like an idiot, I left my copy of Pattern Recognition back at the house. I'm recording this in my office. And so I'm going to have to do everything from memory. And I'm also going to have to deny our listeners the pleasure of hearing me read long passages in my stentorian voice. You do have a beautiful voice. Well, you'll have to do all the reading of passages, I'm afraid. Fuck. This novel manages the difficult trick of feeling like science fiction, feeling indeed like any number of William Gibson's books, you know, and science fiction giving you extrapolations from present day things to some futuristic state where things have reached a point that, you know, we're not at yet. That's the classic science fiction thing, right? Imagine if... Such and so a trend visible in our own time. For example, uh, I don't know, political polarization. Imagine that uh, going to the point that, like, there's a civil war between red state and blue state America, for instance. That's a pretty lame uh, example, but it's the best I can think of off the top of my head. Anyway, science fiction tends to do that kind of stuff, right? Uh, somehow, Gibson manages this trick where he does that. And gives you a world that feels like a world extrapolated from our own, a world that has been utterly defamiliarized and made strange and put in a kind of weird raking light, and yet without changing really much of anything from the world we actually live in. Without importing things that aren't or don't exist. Yeah, there's almost nothing in it that couldn't easily happen. Yeah. Even the central conceit of Casey Pollard. Okay, so the the hero, Casey Pollard, has pronounced case. Oh, is it pronounced case? Yeah. Okay. It's pronounced I, I case. That. Yeah. Okay. The hero, Case Pollard, is a woman who is a cool hunter. So her job is to do research into trends particularly among subcultures, kind of out of the way, obscure, uncoopted subcultures, 
where new trends, new cultural forms are being developed. And she is the special brand of marketing consultant who's able to see what's happening down at that obscure level of cultural invention and cultural development and bring the most promising developments to the attention of like footwear companies or apparel manufacturers or what have you. And, you know, cool hunters actually exist. There's a super interesting article by Malcolm Gladwell that appeared in the New Yorker in the late nineties about a woman who basically invented the job of cool hunter. And in a way, Gibson is doing the typical science fiction thing of like, let's take a cool thing that exists or an interesting thing or maybe a troubling thing, but a thing that exists and let's push it far enough that it starts to feel like sci-fi. So Case Pollard's skill at identifying trends and being able to identify whether a given design is going to work or not is actually a function of a kind of semiotic hypersensitivity where she's actually allergic to certain logos. And so, for instance, the Michelin man, whose real name, by the way, is Bibendum. Yeah. It's a Latin for time to drink, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Bibendum will induce acute panic in her like she'll become physically ill there's a moment near the beginning where she's in london and she ends up she i don't know she comes out of a a tube station or something and she's suddenly in this logo infested environment and she's freaking out and she's trying to get away from it she's like yeah. she like basically logos or brands have a, a physical effect on her they nauseate her that's and right with anxiety yeah but you want to know something even that Okay, you be like, okay, that's the sort of sci-fi edge of it. Even that, actually, by coincidence, I just got done teaching a summer class in recent music, and there's a student I had in that who told me about how she has a kind of, she calls it synesthesia, where there are certain harmonic patterns, certain musical textures that will induce exactly the same kinds of reactions in her that certain logos do in Case Pollard. I'm sure it exists she, somewhere. She actually has she has a version of this semiotic hypersensitivity. That is something that actually has helped her in her musical career, that she's so sensitive to certain musical patterns. Um, you know, it makes her a better musician. But like even something like that. If it's an exaggeration, it's only a very slight exaggeration. Yeah. So this, it's not as if Gibson is introducing effects that rely on their strangeness or they're not belonging to the world that we actually live in. There's just about nothing in this world, in the fictional world of pattern recognition, that is really alien at all. And yet the whole thing feels profoundly weird, very alien. Yeah. He works with a process of amplification. For example, the, the case Pollard psychosis, this deadly phobia of logos. I have a kind of phobia. I don't wear clothes with logos. Um, I don't like the look. I don't like seeing the the Nike swoosh. It never fills me with pleasure to see that. Or even if there is an emotion associated with it, it definitely is negative. I think it's just amplifying something. And you'd expect... A really good cool hunter, someone who's always on the edge 
to react negatively to what has been commodified because she's very sensitive to what's new and what hasn't yet been commodified. So in a way, she's kind of sold her soul, right? Because she works for the world of logos and branding, but she reacts to it very negatively. I, I mean, in my notes, the term wounded healer kept coming up. Like she's mm. she's been wounded by the thing that, and that's what gives her her magical powers is that she's been, she's taken the poison. And so she she knows how poisonous and toxic these brands are these logos that are basically just leveling the world. And he talks about this in the book, the way that hyper-capitalism is basically leveling human cultures, just like reducing everything to a single denominator. But she works for that process. She's, she's, that's, that, those are the people who recognize her talents because she's pulling off that sorcery of knowing what's coming next. She's kind of an oracle for them. So it's very interesting. Right. Yeah, it's a very interesting character. And, and, and yeah, so amplification. So that's one way that Gibson does it. He'll he'll take things that exist, like cool hunting, and amplify it to this new level. At the same time, as it's a process of selection. So he's not showing you the stuff that be- looks like it belongs to the pre-internet world. He's just always putting the camera in a way that it's he's framing the hypermodern. So at the beginning, Case ends up staying at a friend's house, her friend Damien. He's a filmmaker. He makes commercials and stuff. And she's staying in his apartment, which is super modern. And he's describing the interior of this apartment as though it were like the interior of a spaceship. But there are places like that in the world. He's just constantly going, selecting those elements of the world that belong to sci-fi, but that are nonetheless part of our real world, you know? The robot girls. Yeah. The robot girls in the apartment. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this one little detail that actually becomes sort of important that Damien, he's not a boyfriend of Case's. Uh, He's just a good friend. But he has these robot girls left over from maybe it's an art installation. I can't quite remember. Um, but, uh, the, but the idea is that these robot girls are all modeled on an actual girlfriend he had. Like, the, like he made a mold of a girl to form the template for these robot girls. And it, it's just sort of like, okay, that, that could exist. That's possible. It's fucking weird. Um, but yeah, and, and that little detail becomes an important way of giving you the sense that you know, she's in a an apartment that might as well be a spacecraft. Another device he uses, which I admire, is his use of jet lag. So basically, Case Pollard starts off the book. She's going to London to meet a client, and she's super jet lagged. And right off the top, she thinks about Damien's theory of jet lag, where Damien, her friend, says that the reason we get jet lag is because our souls don't move as fast as airplanes. So when we land in a new country, our soul is still floating, tethered to our bodies, slowly coming to us. But it takes a few days. Reeled in on this silvery umbilical cord. He uses a lot of images from uh, Victorian spiritualism and all that in this book. I found that very interesting, too. And so quickly in the book, she goes from London to Tokyo and then back to London and then to Paris at some point. And then she's in Moscow. So she's always more and more jet lagged. She ends up in her own private time zone, she says. And this state of being separated from one's soul, of being jet lagged, of being basically taken for a ride by technologies that move at, at a different speed than anything where bodies were evolved to work with, is basically the modern condition. We're all, in a way, what I'm getting is that the way to really understand how the mood of the of the hypermodern of the world we're in is to is to picture us all in a state of jet lag, like we're all kind of just one step removed from the moment. 
No, what um, she calls soul retrieval, in a state of soul retrieval. Right. And the specific metaphor of jet lag, you can apply that to just the, the modern condition in general, the condition of people who live, who are basically determined by technologies that uh, manifest alien forces in us. So basically, we're all kind of separated from ourselves. We're all kind of in this, in this spectral zone outside of the regular timbres and rhythms of the, the natural world where we evolved, right? So like we're, we're like the technology is mm-hmm. going too fast for us. It's there's a part and when her client, her uh, Hubertus Bigend, this Belgian client, hires her is a big part of the story. He says the problem today is that we have insufficient now to stand on. Like we don't have a present anymore. The future's already happening. And we're we're just kind of being taken for a ride. We don't know where th- we don't know where our own our own thoughts and ideas are taking us. It's like we're possessed in a way. And you really get that sense of a world possessed by alien forces and pattern recognition. And he, he pulls it mm-hmm. off, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. without resorting to actual alien forces. Like the alien forces are our technologies. Yeah. That's maybe the most impressive thing is how he was able to picture something that was beginning to develop in the early internet. I mean, again, this is published in 2003. So the internet had – the commercially available internet had only been around for maybe seven years or something then. Um, and it was a very different place than it is now. But he could tell. He somehow could imagine a temporality that we now inhabit – that is very much fueled not just by the internet, but everything that the internet has enabled. All of the hyper-accelerated communications, uh, the circuits of communication that it has enabled. And it's something that Douglas Rushkoff writes about in his book, Present Shock. You know, Present Shock is a play on the title of a book by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock, which was a big deal back in the 70s, where Toffler's argument was that people need to become futurologists because the future is going to be really different from the present and it's coming really quickly. And people who are used to stasis, people who are used to some kind of cultural continuity are going to be shocked when they wake up and everything's different, right? But Rushkoff is saying that what we're dealing with now is something Related to that, but it's a little bit different. It's not future shock, it's present shock because he's like, okay, so in the early years of the 21st century, we were leaning into the future. We had the feeling that we were on a rendezvous with the future. It was just about to happen. He's like, well, we're there. And he published this book in 2013 or 14, around then. Um, And I think he's like, it's happened. We are now basically at a point where the cultural acceleration has reached a point exactly what Hubertus Biggin says. There's no present for us to stand on. There's no now. There's only yeah. future. And that is a interesting, difficult, paradoxical kind of soul state to get your hands around. But somehow Gibson was able to imagine it before. I mean, it's, if you believe Rushkoff's thesis that there is such a thing called present shock and that it clicked into place sometime in the second decade of the new millennium, you know, if you accept that, then you have to say that Gibson saw it coming and wrote probably a first great literary expression of it in pattern recognition. He even anticipates specific developments. For example, um, we'll get to the plot soon, but this is, you don't need the whole plot to understand this bit. Uh, at one point, Case Pollard and her ally, Parkaboy, 
she knows him only by his internet name at that at that point. Um, they are trying to get information from a guy in Japan. Um, and in order to seduce this guy in Japan, well, Case actually isn't involved in this, but Parkaboy and his other ally, another friend, they create a fictional Japanese girl who will communicate with this guy in Japan and get him to, you know, reveal certain bits of information they want. And the way they do it is that they, they basically meticulously create this persona, much like you would create a Facebook profile. And they convince this guy in Japan that this, this woman is real and he falls in love with her. And that's how they get the information they're looking for. But as it turns out, the woman, the actual American Japanese woman they used as a model for this avatar they created, she learns of what they're doing and she becomes, you know, she wants to be part of the process because they're being mean to this guy in Japan. And eventually she falls in love with him, moves to Japan and becomes the girl that they created for him, for this guy. Yeah. yeah. So you can see that this anticipation of what, you know, Facebook and Twitter eventually understood and, and marketed and, 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 and made possible this creation of a second self that becomes more real than your quote unquote real self, which I found really interesting because he had nothing to go on at that point except yeah. websites and forum discussion forums and chat rooms. So it's, it's just one example of how he, he anticipates the development of the last 20 years. Another thing about how he manages this trick of turning the prosaic present into science fiction, somehow making just the world around us into a science fiction landscape is that he doesn't use an, uh, how to put this It's not an additive process. It's a subtractive process. So what I mean by that is you think about like the example I gave earlier. Okay. I want to make a dystopic science fiction novel about a future United States where some trend in the present has been allowed to metastasize and take over everything. So I just use the example political polarization and you imagine some kind of civil war that breaks out over the, uh, from my point of view, very silly culture war things that people get their undies in a bunch about. Okay, so that's a kind of additive process, right? You're taking something and you're adding something to our world. You're taking something from our world, exaggerating it enormously so that you're adding this new element to our world to defamiliarize it, to make it strange. Um, and that's how you do science fiction. But what Gibson does is subtractive, which is one of the, the basic tensions of the modern is, you know, culture versus nature. And he simply subtracts nature from that side of the equation so that culture is all there is. That's kind of what I was getting at with the selection thing, that he selects what he'll include in the world. Basically, what he's done is he's, he's turned culture into – because since there is no nature in, in his book, culture is the only thing there is. Culture – it's yeah. second nature. Cult culture um, acquires the qualities of something wild, natural, and it, it, not human. And it begins to acquire this uncanny quality of the, you know, you imagine a romantic poets writing about craggy Scottish moors or some shit and whatever emotions that's supposed to arouse in you. Well, that's something that Gibson is able to give us. It's complicated, 
But those emotions are in dialogue with emotions that we as human beings have had for a good long time. But he does it actually by parrying away aspects of the world that we recognize. And you end up with just a, a kind of a polished, smooth, abstractified form of the world that we live in. It's an abstraction, like a, a like a blob in a Miro painting or something. Exactly. And since so she's going from one city to another, you're always in this urban landscape, which for all intents and purposes yeah. is the entire world of the novel. You're always in this kind of confusing, right. bewildering, labyrinthine landscape. And he'll have very poetic passages about this world of artificial things and of garbage and of kind of smooth surfaces and all that. Like, for example, at one point, he just, as an almost an aside or a little rift in the book, she's with uh, another character and there's a pause in the conversation as he checks his email. And Gibson writes, she goes to the canal's edge and looks down, a gray condom drifting like a jellyfish, a lager can half afloat, and deeper down swirls something she can't identify, swathed in a pale and billowing call of ragged builder's plastic. She shudders and turns away. Just little things like that, where he's just hmm. describing garbage, detritus, that's the things on the edge of our, constantly on the edge of our field of vision and just giving them this central place in his, this life. This life. And, and he's describing things that we would not even notice with very poetic language, which makes, make them more real. And in a way, what he's doing is he's showing us that we already live in a science fiction world. We just don't notice it because we're still attached. To, we That's still right. have an, a different world image in our heads, but we're already there. So what's the story about? It's actually quite a simple plot. It has a lot of like twists and turns, but essentially it's the story of this woman, Case Pollard, who's called to London to meet with a client uh, named Hubertus Bigend, Belgian owner of a company called Blue Ant, um, a marketing company. And she's got her own thing going on. She's obsessed with what she calls the footage or what is called the footage, which is a series of highly cinematic, very beautiful, uh, contextless clips that have been put out on the internet that uh, as more and more people are becoming obsessed with trying to track down its origins or its, its message or whatever. So somebody out there is putting out this mysterious footage and he describes it like it's footage from an old film, really like a, like a 1940s kind of Hollywood film or maybe a 1960s European French wave film. They're little clips of two lovers looking at each other, this or that, but people are obsessed with this stuff and Case is obsessed with this footage and she's part of this forum that tries to investigate, tries to find out what this is all about. And um, as it turns out, her client is has called her specifically because of that. He wants her to track down the maker of the footage because he senses in these images... Um, just like this kind of marketing genius. He's just so impressed by how it's been put out, how well made it is. And it just, it hints or intimates this deep intelligence that he wants to tap or monetize or something. He wants to do something with it. So Which, he by the way, her. is also incredibly prescient because, you know, it's now, I think, widely understood that 
in an attention economy, attention matters much more than money. Right. That wasn't clear back then. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't. Um, To the extent that you even begin to lose the sense of attention as a means to an end. Like, well, you want to grab the attention of potential buyers so they'll buy your thing. But the real meaning of an attention economy is, to me, at any rate, and I know I'm not the first person to say this, when attention itself is a form of currency. Right. Not attention as monetizable through this or that channel, but just attention. Yeah, and, and yeah. this is something, and this is and this is what makes Hubertus Big End uh, a visionary in the world of advertising. It's worth noting Hubertus Big End, although he doesn't have a lot of screen time in the book, he's actually a very important character. And the the trilogy of novels, very loosely tied together, of which Pattern Recognition is the first. There are two two other novels that followed it. The one thing they all have in common is the character of Hubertus Big End. And Big End is, in many ways, kind of like the new man. You know how Marxists would talk about how we're, in the socialist society, we're building the new man. In many ways, Hubertus Big End is the new man, capital N, capital M, of the attention economy. And he's somebody who understands it isn't about money. In fact, there's a little detail at the end of Pattern recognition where there's one character named Boon Chu, who for a while we sort of thought is a heroic dude who maybe he's going to be the the dashing fellow that Case takes up with or for something. Paramore, nope. yeah. Yeah, turns out he's actually a little disappointing that he isn't quite all he was cracked up to be. And at the end, Big End actually kind of writes his epitaph, not literally, I mean, but he's dismissed from the narrative. And... Big End says contemptuously about him right at the end. Turns out it was always just about money for him. Yeah. And he's just contemptuous of that because ultimately what Big End is interested in, money is simply a side effect of what he's actually interested in, which is attention. Attention, And which which, the, the movement of human attention. And that is the genius that he perceives at the heart of the footage phenomenon that whoever is putting it out, their genius lies not only in the creation of these beautiful, explicitly very Tarkovsky-like little snippets of film. And they're all short, you know, like a minute, minute and a half tops. Um, But what he, the genius that he sees is partly the genius, the filmmaking genius itself, but also it's the way that distribution, the distribution of it and the way this footage, the, the way it's distributed and the nature of the footage itself has created it's the ultimate cool medium, to put it in McLuhan speak, right? right? It's this thing that just has managed to invite participation on a global scale, and yet it's not mainstream. Like footage heads, as they're called, are like really marginal, that somehow the mainstream media never quite cottons onto them, and yet it's a global phenomenon of people who are obsessive about this shit, and like true otaku shit. Yeah. And it's... It's the ability of the footage to call into existence an obsessed subculture. Uh, that's what interests Big End. That's the big game that he's hunting. And that's why he needs Case Pollard's special gifts, her ability to perceive. Uh, what does he say? Uh, not Big End, but the narrative voice says she's a dowser. Yeah. But he calls her a dowser in the world of. You know, this sort of semiotically oversaturated space of like logos everywhere. Yeah. 
And, and, and very, that's why Big N needs someone with that skill because that's the big game that he's hunting. That's exactly. So what happens in an economy when it moves from being, a, let's call it, I don't know, a commodities economy to a, an attention economy? In a sense, this is where this is the moment where capitalism becomes a kind of sorcery, because what you're doing is you're not selling objects anymore. You're, the object is just a way for you to buy the attention. Yeah. And and I'm when I think of that, it reminds me of you know, um, pagan theologies where you know a, a god is only as strong as his cult. So, yes. so if a god runs out of worshipers, he kind of evaporates. What a god wants with the sacrifices and stuff is attention. And um, it seems like Big End is realizing that all along, maybe, the capitalist was always after that in the end. That money was just a symbol of that. That in a sense, what we live on is a kind of... um. It's magic again, because what he's doing is he's trying, yeah, I'm I'm finding it hard to articulate what it is. I think I kind of made the point, but um, that we've moved into kind of a capitalist sorcery and and Big N is in a sense is a kind of sorcerer figure, Mm -hmm. just as, just as, um, as cases in a sense, she's kind of a shaman or a. Yeah. And this is also a feature of a world where that tension between nature and culture has evaporated or simply collapsed, where the entire world is culture then suddenly that opens up a new field of opportunity for sorcery. Right. Because if everything is symbols, you know, what makes magic implausible? The idea that you can leap from the realm of symbols to the realm of things, that I can do a working or I can do a little ritual in my little uh, temple that I have at home, um, I want to make somebody fall in love with me. This is an example I've used before. So I'm going to invoke the goddess Venus. I'm going to make sure that I have seven candles on my altar because seven is the number of Venus. I'm going to make sure I have things made of copper because copper is the metal of Venus, blah, blah, blah. And what's implausible about that for people who are not down with magic is like, okay, so these are symbolic invocations of the girl falling in love with you, but how does the symbol call into existence the material reality? Right. And yet, if you think about a world that has been radically pared down where everything is culture, suddenly it's just like, well, it's just symbols acting upon symbols, in which case all of a sudden magic is very easy to understand. And magic is constantly being done in this world. Yeah. And also another thing that happens when you when you break that dichotomy apart, when all you have is culture, well, you you could just as well say that all you have is nature. Yeah, exactly. Since everything becomes symbols, everything a symbol being always a bipartite object. A symbol, you know, the, the Greek word means thrown together. So so a symbol is always well. Actually, doesn't it originally pertain to the idea of like a king's seal that would yeah. be broken in half? Yeah. And so what, that, you have one half, and then the king has the other half, and only in reuniting them do you know that you have the true word. Exactly. Which is why Jung and others have written about the symbol as always a kind of partial sign. It always has a it always has a face that's hidden from you. You always see half the symbol. You see the dragon. But the dragon implies something else you don't see, and that's part of the symbol too. That every symbol has a kind of unconscious or dark part to it, like the moon has a dark side. So, mm-hmm. if everything's like that, then all these cultural objects that surround us have a dark side, a side that bleeds or fades into 
uh, the unknowable or the unknown or the unhuman. So that when you're combining the things on your altar and hoping by that to conjure some forces that will turn that into a physical manifestation of this woman's love for you in real life, what you're doing essentially is just working on that dark side of things, the side where all these symbols connect on some level. So in a way, like to say that everything is culture is automatically to say that everything is nature. Yeah. So as things become very knowable at their face value, but extremely alien and strange when you start thinking about the part of things that don't face you directly, everything yeah. has a kind of dream of power but hidden within them. Yeah, which is the crucial thing about the world that Case finds herself in. Right, on every level of the narrative. It's a world saturated in mysteries. On one hand, the surfaces of that world are expertly conjured by Gibson's wonderful writing. Um, everything is silvery. Everything is glass and chrome. Everything is reflective. Everything is shiny. Everything repels touch and intimacy in a way. Everything is surface, and yet those surfaces, the metaphor that comes to mind is like, imagine a pool of mercury. You know, mercury is weird-looking stuff. You know, it's metal, but it's liquid. Mm -hmm. Cool, liquid metal. It's the platypus of the, of the mineral world. <laughs> I like that. And you, you look at it, and it's like shiny. It's a surface. And yet, you know, if you had a bucket of this stuff, you could plunge your hand all the way in it. I don't know if that would be a very healthy thing to do, but you could. And it's sort of like the surfaces that Case encounters are like that. Everything is shiny surfaces, and yet you could plunge into them. And yeah. she does plunge into them. Right. That's such a good metaphor, Mercury, because Mercury reflects whatever's in front of it. So if you look at a pool of Mercury, you'll see your face in it. And it looks like just pure surface, but if you it, the surface hides these depths, and that's the that's the sense I get from this book is that these surfaces go deep, right? And the more you go into them, the more they reveal, and the more they hide at the same time. So let's get back to narrating the the plot of the book, right? So that's her mission, Case's mission. She's originally hired by an associate of Big Ends to just to evaluate a logo. And as she's doing this, she encounters this menacing, like, louche executive named Dorotea. Yeah. And Dorotea fucks with Case. Like, Case is just hired by this associate of Big Ends to say, yes or no, will this logo work? And she's like, nope, won't work. Then she comes back a day or two later. And in the meantime... The apartment she's staying at, Damien's apartment, has gotten broken into, and she finds this out because when she goes on to this uh, online forum where she discusses footage with Parker Boy and all of her friends, she discovers uh, – what do you call it? Like, um, in, in like the browser history. Yeah. Shows that somebody has visited a porno site. Yeah. And this – reveals to her like somebody's been in here so like this is the beginning of this strangeness and then when she goes to the second meeting dorotea passes her an envelope that's supposed to have the fixed logo she's supposed to look at and she opens it up pulls it out and it's a picture of bibendum the michelin man yeah the michelin man and she almost passes out because very few people know about her deep phobia let alone her phobia of the michelin man the michelin man was the one who started it all okay so you know, at first, it seems as if Dorotea is just jealous because Big End 
clearly likes Case and wants her for some special project. And of course, we discover what it is. He wants to discover the, who the maker of the footage is. And at first, we sort of play it off like, oh, Dorotea is just, you know, jealous and she's hired some goons to intimidate her and follow her around and blah, blah, blah. But it gets a little bit more mysterious. The deeper she goes, she starts realizing that this mystery, whatever it is, it has something to do with an oligarch. You know, this is back before Putin really consolidated his power in Russia in that kind of chaotic period for about a decade after the end of the Soviet Union, where the oligarchs were sort of scrambling for power. And it was a pretty high stakes game. People were getting assassinated left and right. Anyway, she starts discovering that somehow this one oligarch, somebody who's like enormously wealthy from like, I don't know, Balkan natural gas or something like that, that he somehow is involved in this. And it starts seeming, we start realizing that Dorotea is somehow involved with that, with these shadowy powers yeah. we learned Russia. that she she formerly worked as a corporate spy is one thing we learn about her um right. so so the the plot starts to shoot off tendrils into that world the world of oligarchs and crime um but it's only slowly that that's connected to the footage but as it turns out the footage comes from that world <laughs> yeah. yeah so to cut a long story short the maker of the footage is one of two twin sisters who are nieces of this very powerful oligarch. And their parents had been killed in an assassination. And the same assassination attempt, it was like somebody had used a Claymore anti-personnel mine. And that had killed their parents outright and very, very badly wounded one of the twin sisters. Who was a filmmaker. Who was a filmmaker. And... She was very badly brain damaged. And in fact, like there's this one particular piece, the arming mechanism of the Claymore mine that had been driven deep into her skull, into her brain. And it's lodged in a place where like they can't get at it without killing her. And so she's there. And this is actually the only real sci-fi or kind of genuinely uncanny detail in the whole thing. The way that she finds out who's making the footage is by... This kind of number crunching, and JF's already alluded to it, you know, getting this math geek to fall in love with this imaginary girl to get him to say that he's found this encoded watermark. And then using the watermark case, realizes that numbers create this kind of T-shape. It's like the T of a T-bone steak, a kind of blobby, asymmetrical T and it turns out that the only physical object that this T resembles, at first case, thinks it's a map. It's like a street pattern from some city, but she doesn't know which one. She discovers that it's the shape of the arming mechanism of this Claymore mine. And so somehow this woman who's been so profoundly damaged by this explosion that she's completely mute and she can't like relate to human beings anymore. The only thing in fact, that's keeping her alive is making the footage that she's like really badly damaged, but they figure out that if they create like a state of the art film editing studio, what she does is she just finds odd little bits of random found footage. It could be like security camera footage, but she just obsessively for hours every day will re-engineer the footage pixel by pixel until it turns into something Tarkovskian. 
And it turns out that in some occult way, she is creating in this footage some kind of abstract expression of this object that's embedded in her head. Right, right. Which is the one kind of thing where she's like, whoa, that's weird. So that's kind of the reveal. And it turns out Dorotea has been working for this guy to kind of chase Case off of the trail. It turns out that the oligarch is actually a pretty nice guy. He's doing something wonderful. He's allowing this footage to exist in the world, and he's doing it out of love for his nieces. It's just Dorotea kind of goes rogue, and she's sort of in it for herself, and she tries to do something terrible to Case, but it doesn't work. And in the end, uh, Dorotea is defeated. Big End learns the secret But he doesn't want to do anything with it. He just wanted to know. And, you know, the happy ending for him is now he's friends with this oligarch. You know, one of the sort of science fictional aspects of this book is that it's imagining the the tip of the pyramid. You know, this is something we talked about in the episode about Eyes Wide Shut. Right. That it's imagining the tip of the pyramid, that society is like this pyramid that goes up forever. And the very tip of it, the super rich, the super powerful, people whose lives are unimaginable to we groundlings. You know, we can only kind of imagine what it's like up there at the tip of the pyramid. But the tip of the pyramid is like shrouded in clouds and shit. You can't even see it, right? Part of what Gibson is doing in imagining the strange denaturalized world uh, is imagining what happens at that very tippy top level where the super powerful, where, you know, a, a baron of the attention economy, big end meets a baron of the industrial economy. And we don't really know what they talk about, but we know like something that had to happen has been consummated. There's been some kind of like tectonic shift of power at that very highest level. Right. And so that's kind of the outcome for Big End. For Case, it's like she discovers the truth of the footage. It stays a secret. Big End knows. Case knows. Parker Boy, uh, who becomes her boyfriend by the end, he knows. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Everybody lives happily ever after. There's so many ways in to in, in analyzing this further. Uh, one is I, I find that the book is a meditation on art, for one. How does art survive in our world of hyper-commodification, of universal commodification? How does something remain singular in a world where everything is endlessly reproduced? And I think that he's hinting at that with the footage. The footage, I think he, I don't think he has a, I, I wouldn't be able to turn it into a clear theory, but I find a lot of resonance with what he's saying here, that art somehow has to come out of, it can't be intended. It has to somehow come out of some inner necessity that is equal parts conscious and unconscious. The The fact that the footage is being generated by this um this woman who was really, really badly wounded and had this piece of metal embedded in her brain 
just that alone tells us something about how there's always a bit of an alien uh, intrusion in the creation of a work of art. That in a way, yeah. it's that thing in her mind that's doing it, that object. And that's a, mm. that's, that reflects, that resonates with what Gibson is saying about objects in general in this book and other, other books he's written about the agency of objects. He really is a kind of a writer of the non-human, where the things that we thought were just human things, a fork, a spoon, a computer, whatever, become strangely alien and, and uh, become agents of a sort. But I do think that there are more uncanny bits than that one thing. Um, there's a whole kind of subtext in the book about uh, ghosts, souls, uh, electron, uh, electronic voice phenomena. That's true. Yeah. And, um, and dreams, right? So Case's father disappeared on 9-11. And no one ever has ever figured out what happened to him. By the end of the book, spoiler of spoilers, we, we learn pretty much that he died. We don't know for sure, but we're pretty sure he died on that day. That it's, it's plausible that he was at the site of the, uh, of the uh, attack. And Case's mother is living in Maui. She's part of a kind of intentional community that's all about interpreting electronic voice phenomena, which is basically you, you get like scratchy audio recordings and in the noise you detect voices. And the theory is that these voices come from the dead. The dead communicate th to us through our technology. And there's a transcript, a short transcript of a transmission or whatever, a recording that her mother analyzed in which she says her father, Case's father, is speaking to her. So her mother emails it to her to just to, to make sense of so her mom writes her, um, messages of this sort do not yield very easily to conventional studio techniques. Those on the other side are best able to modulate those aspects of a recording that we ordinarily think of as noise. So improvement of the signal to noise ratio amounts to the erasure of the message. However, if you use headphones and concentrate, you will be able to hear your father say the following. File number one, grocery store, the tower of light, and then parenthesis says life. File two, case, 100 and start of your address. That's what her mother comments. File number three, cold here, Korea, parenthesis, core error, ignored, he says. And then file four, case, the bone in the head case. And then parenthesis, head case, someone here suggested, but frankly, it isn't an expression your father would have used. The bone in the head case, mm. which is exactly the object in the mind of the maker. So- yeah. It doesn't have any plot consequences. The fact that her father's voice spoke to her mother on a recording and actually revealed the big reveal of the book. But that's what happens. When he says the bone in the head case, he's, I think it's quite obviously referring to the object in the head of the woman making the footage. Right. So what Gibson is telling us very subtly, or what he's introducing into the book um, and he does it in other ways too. For example, Case has a dream of her father, which turns out to be useful to her. And also at the end, her father speaks to her and warns her that she's just drank uh, drugged or poisoned water or drugged water. So all this to say that there's an actual supernatural element in this story. That's that true. I haven't seen acknowledged anywhere, which tells us more, even more about the connections between our technologies and the that deeper stratum of reality that we might refer to as the spirit world or the world of the dead, the unconscious, the collective unconscious, the, I don't know, the daimonic. 
and that these technologies are manifesting in our immediate reality forces that go much deeper than they seem to, you know, that really much really transcend the kind of commodity and economy, the kind of like uh, marketplace of objects and ideas that we usually restrict those things to, you know? Yeah, there's a way that people have of talking about disenchantment that's kind of unsatisfying and the idea that you can't have enchantment in a world of, you know, Starbucks, MacBooks, or cell phones, these glossy consumer technologies. And something that's actually quite interesting, if you study the history of the occult, is actually how remarkably adaptive it is in picking up whatever technologies are at hand. So, for instance, the old-fashioned technology of a scrying stone, you know, like a crystal ball or a black mirror. You know, you stare into it until you go into a hypnagogic state and you can kind of see patterns in it and and you can use that as a bridge to the other world, right? Yeah. But uh, Genesis Peorage of the Temple of Psychic Youth suggested using a TV tuned to static. Right. It would work the same way. Um, that is actually pretty typical. It's like you can't really get rid of the enchantment. The technology simply will be a conduit for uh, for whatever. And so the idea of electronic voice phenomena, you don't need a shitty old reel-to-reel tape machine to generate EVP. You can generate it on uh, – I mean, you can generate it on the devices that we're using right except now. The, except those devices cancel out noise, Right. So you need noise for that stuff to come through, but I'm sure you could use it. I agree with you. I'm just like, that's the difference is that, and this goes back to our Stranger Things things, the difference between the digital and the analog. Maybe in Mm. a sense, analog technologies are much more conducive to connecting to that stratum than digital technologies are. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Although in the the Patreon Extra, you you said that uh, a fuller understanding of the whole reality is analog thing would compel you to say that reality is also digital. Yes. I mean, there's noise everywhere, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the book is that he's rewilding or he's wilding things that we think of as completely domesticated and tamed. The most domesticated technologies, the most purpose-built technologies, an iPhone is just as wild in its essential makeup as, you know, a rock in the forest or a waterfall. It's all made out of the same stuff. And that's another thing that I've said is that even digital devices are analog, uh, ultimately. Okay, so Austin Osmond Spare wrote a number of famously obscure and perhaps channeled writings that deal with art and the occult. And I think it is in the focus of life, the mutterings of Zaus, he writes, if the desire for realization exists in the sensuous objects will continually provide conveniences. And the way I interpret that is it's a kind of water finds its own level sort of thing. If you want to say that there is no such thing as an enchanted universe or we live in a disenchanted universe, you have to say all the ferry roads have been closed. There's no pathways from here to the other world that our Glossy, shiny surfaces or modern technologies have somehow closed the ferry roads. They've inhibited any communication from beyond the purely imminent plane. But I think the thing that Spare is saying that if the desire for realization exists in you, 
Uh, and by realization, I don't mean necessarily the big E enlightenment, just gnosis, the apprehension of something more than the banal. Sensuous objects will continually provide conveniences. Even those banal surfaces, whatever physical objects are in your environment, whether it's a TV tuned to static or whether it's a digital recorder, they will provide conveniences. They will provide occasions for that kind of water to find its own level. This is at least something that I have personally found to be true. And so when I read that line of spares, I was like, yeah, that's my experience of synchronicity, for example. You know, your iPhone can be a convenience. Uh, the material stratum doesn't necessarily matter. So, you know, getting back to my thing about like disenchantment, I don't really buy the idea of disenchantment or that we live in some permanently disenchanted world. And it's because it doesn't matter kind of what the material stratum is one way or another, it will turn itself into a, a resonating medium. And that is something that I think that William Gibson is brilliant at sort of grasping in this yeah, novel. Absolutely. Because he shows us how that happens. Even as he warns us against the dangers of the world we now live in, this attention economy. And here we have an interesting dichotomy, uh, dichotomy between what we were talking about earlier, attention. The gods want our attention. The people at the top of a pyramid want to funnel up our attention and use it. But use it for what? What do the gods have? Intention. If you're giving your attention away to something, um, and I'm using the word attention here in this kind of libidinal investment sense, uh, kind of idolatrous almost sense, so the, the type of attention that marketers are looking for. You're paying for that with your intention. You lack intentionality. You, you, you lose intentionality. Mm. And in a sense, this is a story about how we preserve intention in a world of attention. Case's quest, her aversion to the attention economy manifested as her phobia of logos protects her against, you know, the real deprivations of that world. And it gives her an opportunity to maintain a connection with that path of realization that allows the world to manifest its innate and permanent enchantment. And that's also the world of the footage. It's the world of this Russian girl who, because she was wounded, is able to manifest purely her attention, her intention through this art. At one point, uh, Gibson writes about her, the artist. He says, there's only the wound speaking wordlessly in the dark. In a sense, like, and this brings me back to this kind of a jumble of thoughts, but the idea of the wounded healer. In a sense, we mm. have to drink the poison of the world we're in in order to become able to manipulate that world, or at least, and that's a bad word, but at least to, to govern ourselves in that world and to allow object to become our conveniences as opposed to the conveniences of those who want our attention and want to vampirize that attention. So it's like, it's like a, a novel about finding agency in a world um, where we've become almost disembodied, finding our footing again in a world with insufficient now to stand on. You know, hmm. and, and, and carving our paths, uh, either artistically or just, you know, in our personal relationships, finding a way to have real authenticity reemerge in this world. And that's the kind of the threat. Like, and Gibson is equal parts utopia and dystopia in this book. Yeah. It's a yeah. happy ending, but it's a happy ending in a dystopia. Mm -hmm. And 
I guess, yeah, that's a good goal today. How to have a happy ending in a dystopia. (laughs) (laughs) The the way Rushkoff puts it, and the title of another of his books, Program or Be Programmed. You know, I I, I feel like this show is all about a certain streak of, I won't say optimism, but I would say it's not pessimism. It's realism. Not hyphen pessimism. Yeah, I'd like to think it's realism. I think so much of contemporary intellectual life is miserablest, constantly giving us reasons to be pessimistic and none to be optimistic. But I feel like if you want to be realistic, you have to keep the algebra equation going. You have to keep both sides balanced. And that seems to me that the if you want to recuperate something optimistic, either from this book or for, from our conversation now or our conversations generally – it would be that idea of programmer be programmed. The position, the role, the persona of the magician. And the magician is a person who wakes up to the forces in which he or she is enmeshed or who becomes alert to the voices, the EVP, the voices that are making themselves present through whatever conveniences are lying ready at hand. The signal in the noise, yeah. Yeah, in whatever environment you happen to be in. There's no environment that is inherently proof against that kind of, that kind of communication, those kind of voices. And the magician's the one who learns to listen and the one who can do something with what they're hearing. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>